welcome to Sullivan Street, where we have special guest Jeff Harkness today. But first, let's say hi to Chris. Chris, how are you today? Hey, I'm good. I'm good. A lot of concerts, so, a lot of good crow shows in the last couple of weeks as I've been listening to. Uh, so it's been good. I know it's funny, partly because I guess we're doing the podcast, but it seems like there's all sorts of Counting Crows news, right? Like there, there's our podcast, we've been going to the concerts, the Banshee tour is in full effect, and there's been news there. And in the last couple months, a Counting Crows book was released. And that's what we're going to talk about today with Jeff Harkness. Jeff, how are you? Thanks for joining us. Doing great. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. So the one question we ask all of our guests the first time they appear on our podcast is, before we get into the book, how did you become a big Counting Crows fan? Or, I mean, if you even want to delineate a regular fan or a hardcore fan, and what has kept you coming back even before this book? Sure. Well, I heard Mr. Jones when it was released as a single to college radio. So prior to them playing on Saturday Night Live, I think I heard it in November or December of 1993. And just that song really hooked me. I, I got it on like a promotional CD. Didn't know anything about the band, but I just remember playing the song over and over that night. This was a time when you couldn't just go to the internet and look them up and find out, you know, everything about the group. So it wasn't right away that I discovered August and everything after. I don't remember seeing them on Saturday Night Live, but I certainly eventually found the album and fell in love with it just like everybody else. And, you know, I mean, I had, was listening to it and at some point Mr. Jones came on and I'm like, that's the, that's this band, you know. So <laughs> I, I've been a fan of theirs ever since. It was unfortunately not until 1999 that I saw them for the first time live. And, but I, I did a little catching up because I saw them, I, I want to say maybe three times that, uh, in that first year that, you know, after seeing them for the first time. And one of those shows, the, the show that I saw in 2000 in Omaha was just absolutely transformative. One of the best live shows I've ever seen. And I think that was, you know, those types of shows were what really, caught me as a fan. How amazing this band is live uh, has kept me coming back and seeing them over and over again. I certainly think that anybody who's a fan of theirs would would share that sentiment. So wait, you were spinning Mr. Jones? Like, were you doing radio at the time? No, I was working in a bookstore and uh, CMJ, College Music Journal, uh, featured Mr. Jones in the November uh, 93 issue because it was just released to college radio. So it's the second song on that uh, promotional sort of giveaway CD that came with the magazine. Working at the bookstore, we got all of the free copies that didn't sell at the end of the month. So I'm a huge music fan. I always took that uh, CD home with me. And uh, that was just on there that month. And, and that particular song, I mean, it was. It was like a lightning bolt. I, I know I played it 20 times that night, just over and over and over again. Um, I thought this is like one of the most incredible songs I've ever heard. I had no idea who the band was or anything about them. That also sounds like one of those, everyone has like those teenage dream jobs and you're like, free music magazines. <laughs> Tremendous. God, what more could I ask for in employment? <laughs> yes, yes. And, and some of those, like the, the imports, we, it was the Borders. We had all the imports, like the British music magazines, NME and Q and stuff. These are like $15, $20 even back then. So it was heaven for a big music fan like me. Uh, so uh, we didn't mention it uh, by title yet, but... The book that you wrote is called Rain King, The Life and Music of Adam Duritz and Counting Crows. And I think 
the title's great. And, and I, in a way, I was glad then that we named our podcast Sullivan Street, not Rain King. So we didn't get confused because <laughs> I almost did. Or I almost said the Rain Kings or something. But I also like uh, you said that Adam Duritzen kind of because a lot of it does focus on Adam, especially, I guess, the first half of the book. But you do talk about uh, the group as well. Um, uh, both of us have a lot of questions about uh, what you said uh, or in the book. Oh, and by the way, it was released. Was it? I think it was May. Yeah. May 11th of 2023. Right. Yeah, it, it basically just came out a couple of months ago. And we'll plug it again at the end, but I know it's available on Amazon by Kindle. That's how I bought it. And it looks now you can actually buy paperback and hardcover. Yeah, it's available in all three of those formats. And eventually, it won't be long, we should have an audio book pretty soon as well. Fantastic. So, um, And spoiler alert, I recommend yeah. it. Yeah, and oh, Eric does too. We, we both like it. Let's, let's no, start with there. Uh, no, I, I highly recommend the book. I devoured it. In fact, there's part of me that thinks that any hardcore Crows fan that's listening to our podcast might have already uh, uh, bought the book, but just in case, <laughs> and uh, to, to remind them and tell or new listeners to the podcast. Uh, I do want to ask, though, before we get into the detail, kind of like the first episode of our podcast, we said, oh, why did we want to start a podcast? I mean, what made you decide to write a book? I mean, even I knew that maybe there was an open space in the market for it, but I certainly wasn't going to have the energy to do it. Uh, and then how long did it actually, if you want to talk about maybe the process a little bit, how long did it take you to write it, et cetera? So, I, I mean, I've been writing for a really long time. I got my first job as a journalist in 1999 and I've been writing regularly ever since then. And I've, I was a music journalist for five or six years. Um, after that, I got into really scholarly and academic writing, writing like peer-reviewed journal articles. That's a particular type of writing. It's different and challenging, but also, um, you know, has its limitations too and sort of structural things. And, and then I got into the last frontier, which was books. And so uh, over the last 10 years, I wrote three scholarly academic monographs published with university presses. But, you know, for me, so writing is just, it's almost like breathing to me. It's just what I do and have always done. These types of books, these books about bands and rock bands, to me, like probably one of the greatest joys in my life since I was a, a child, really, was sitting down and reading an amazing book about an incredible musical artist or band and then also listening to their music as I read the book. Um, and today, I still think that that's one of my great joys in life. And I, I love these books. I always have. I've read them since I was probably seven or eight years old. And I've read them all. And I'm a huge fan of the genre. And to me, it was just always absolutely stunning that there wasn't a book about Counting Crows. I've been honestly just waiting for this book to be published by someone for like 20 years because I read these these books and it's like, how could there be, you know, so many books about Bruce Springsteen or the Rolling Stones or Prince, wonderful artists, R.E.M., so many great books and great artists, but how is there not a, a you know, a book detailing Counting Crows? I always wondered that. So finally, I just decided kind of um, that I would write. I would write it. They say that writers should write the books that they want to read. And this this is a the <clears throat> this is the exact book that I've always wanted to read, I guess. Yeah. 
Um, that, that, that's great. And I do, I don't want to, uh, I know what you said about the academic writing being very different. I do want to mention, I did at least uh, briefly look at your other books. You had at least one other book on music, right? On hip hop, even though it was more of an academic, I guess, book. Um, so you have, yeah. and you said your journalism background, you have written uh, uh, about music uh, before. Oh yeah. Now I have a deep background in music. And in fact, uh, my dissertation research in Chicago was a six year study of the underground rap music scene. And my first book is about the relationship between gangs and rap music in Chicago. So that was a very sort of in-depth project, totally different genre. And my third book is a 20-year study of a, a rap group from the middle of uh, Kansas that almost made it but didn't make it. And usually we hear the stories like Counting Crows of the, the famous artists. And, and so I wrote a book about a, a band no one's ever heard of. And uh, I spent 20 years doing it. <laughs> <laughs> t t taking a brief aside uh, from your book for a second, I just wanted to have a couple lines in here to make all of us and our listeners feel better about themselves, which is that all three of us, for example, have dabbled in academia. And I say that because did I only found out this like two weeks ago that someone did, and I don't know how good the study was, but somebody in 2014 tried to do some kind of quantitative study about the average IQ of people that like certain <laughs> bands. And Counting Crows was, it was like, it was Beethoven, Counting Crows, and someone I never heard of about, which you probably all, who I guess was very popular. What is it? Uh, uh, Sufjan Stevens, you know, Sufjan Stevens, right. Yeah. So those yeah. three p fans of Beethoven, Counting Crows, and Sufjan Stevens had the highest IQ. And you know what made me feel really good? That Pearl Jam fans were in, were very average intelligence, which, 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 by the way, ties into the fight that's in your book about Pearl Jam criticizing <laughs> Counting Crows on the Coke commercial. And I and I respect Pearl Jam, but something about them and Eddie always kind of got on my nerves and I was on Team Adam. And so um, I'm glad that we all have superior intellect, everybody that listens to this podcast, to, to, to Pearl Jam fans. So. And we don't want to exclude any of the Guar fans out there right. either, because we know that you are very well read too. So we'll shout so, out to the Guar fans as well. Yeah. No, it's, 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 a, it's not a great study i mean it, it's basically like looks at like po most popular at certain colleges and translates like sat scores right. to it's not oh great. right 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 yeah and did, but did it's you see that great study did you see that I, so interesting but though for our purposes it makes it, we we accept it as brilliant the best <laughs> because it proves that we are very smart people for liking counting things. and i saw that ben folds was also Genius. in the top like five or six which made me laugh because we have two of their ex-band members with the counting crows right so so that made me laugh too um so yeah let's focus on the book and chris and i can take turns and if you just there's something you want to talk about you know either from the book or things you didn't talk about in the book um one thing i guess i just want to say i appreciate that not content wise but i guess format wise i really like that you know you focus you know, a bit on him growing up, but not too much, right? It's not just about his childhood. And then you talked about early days with the band and that was great. And I thought it was the best way in the latter part of the book to separate it by album title. I, I thought that was the best way to do it. Uh, Chris, any other uh, no, and I'll say One of the interesting things was that the, in terms of like a discussion of Adam's sort of pre-Counting Crow's life, I feel like I'd heard a lot of those stories in pieces and just in general, I feel like you did a really good job of kind of tying it through and kind of going, let's kind of create a coherent story here because I feel like we've been hearing all these things in bits and pieces over the years and you kind of put all the things together and go, okay, now I have a little bit better picture of this journey as opposed to just hearing 
the, the snippets and, and particularly the snippets that come out a lot, right? I mean, traveled across the country. Yes, that we know that, that he was moving around a lot as a kid. That comes back a lot. But then the actual yes, sort of yes. some of the details within there I thought were really interesting. What did you pick up on? Anything that surprised you as you were kind of pulling that together? Um, well, I mean, in the same way, it was sort of a synthesis of things that I, I was sort of familiar with the overall trajectory of the story, but there were so many details that came out in doing the research and looking into it that many things, you know, sort of surprised me. And also, you know, I wanted to sort of show, I was very interested in focusing on the music. And so this is why the chapters are, are you know, built around the making of each one of their albums and, and really sort of focused on what was going on in Adam's life, what was going on in the life of the band, you know, who was the producer, where was it recorded, how were the songs written, how did they change once they went on the road. I was sort of really interested in that part of the story, which I feel is often absent from these types of books, you know. You, you'll read like... I mean, I'll just give you an example that many people have probably read The Dirt, which is that, you know, fun book about Motley Crue. Um, you won't get almost anything about their music in that book, though. And I thought, you know, don't you guys respect your music enough to to write about it? So I really wanted to, yeah, you know, maybe not. But it, <laughs> right. But like, you know, you would just think that the music is more central to the story. So I really wanted to foreground the music in, in um, the writing of the story and build it around there. Then in, in coming in going through it, there were so many parts of that story that did surprise me. So even something like the the skirmish with Eddie Vedder, I knew about the Coke commercial, but I had no idea about the Eddie Vedder thing. And there were so many pieces like that along the way. Um, the that was one of the more interesting that, things for yeah, me too, as someone who's like been following and reading about the band a lot. Like I'm like maybe I heard a, a sentence about this, but the details of them going kind of back and forth with it, I thought were very interesting. That about how. Right annoyed Eddie Vedder seemed to get about this and how annoyed Adam got back for him getting annoyed. Right, right. I mean, it, it is so 90s, right? Because Eddie Vedder is literally the poster child of the word, you shouldn't be a sellout. And it's funny because most kind of gross fans would say that Adam Duritz is also one of those people, right? Very, you know, that he's very idealistic and, and does things his own way and not a sellout. And I think that was part of this tension, because um, Adam was probably like, are you kidding me about this? Right. <laughs> so. And for those who don't know the story, I don't want to spoil anything in the book, right? But Count and Crows did do a Coke commercial in 2002, around the time of the release of Hard Candy with American the song Girls, American right? Girls. That, yeah, yeah. And w what prompted Eddie, did Eddie Vedder just make a comment, was it, that he, on something and Adam kind of shot back? Yeah, I think he, he there was a quote uh, that came out, Eddie Vedder sort of putting down Counting Crows and some other artists who had done commercials and, and sort of saying, you know, they're out of the, the club now. Uh, and then Duritz also fired back in, in the press. In the, in the book, one of the things that I did was I sourced everything so you mega fans could go in and find the actual uh, source of it because there's often you know, a lot more. You know, I couldn't, I didn't quote everything that, that uh, Adam Duritz, for example, said about this situation. There's even more. So the super fans can track down the original sources and, you know, read up even more. But there was some back and forth in the press. And then the interesting part is that I have no idea is that Eddie Vedder shows up backstage at a Who concert where County Crows are opening. And leaves this book for Adam Duritz about the evils of the Coca-Cola Corporation. And, um, 
Adam then, you know, gets it and has a quote in the press saying, yeah, I read the book and, you know, you can sort of read about it there. But it was, there was just more to those. I had no idea about any of that stuff until I was doing the research and writing the book. So to me, somebody who was always a big fan and had followed the story, there were many times where I was just surprised to hear, you know, or to find out the details or also to be reminded, like the thing where Matt Malley wrote the letter to Rolling Stone. I remember that when it happened, but I also around the same time. Yeah. 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 I'd forgotten about that. And um, so reading, it, it's like, oh yeah, yeah. I remember. I remember. So some things were, were just had been lost to the sands of time. But you know what those two things have in common? It's funny. I was just about to say this and this almost ties with what Chris's um, comment was, which is that you, mo- the one great thing about this book for hardcore fans is that you might have heard you're going to find out new things, but you're also there's things that, you know, or the bits and pieces were everywhere. And then Jeff synthesizes it. And also, don't forget, Counting Crows, when they started, was I guess you can say arguably pre-Internet, you know, early forms of the Internet. What we're starting ninety five ish. Um, and then, but a, a lot of this, uh, of, of like the Coke, uh, even some fans, uh, kind of Crows fans, of course, didn't like that kind of Crows were on a Coke commercial and, a and also the Matt Malley thing, but where the news was about this was like on the Count and Crows message boards, but all that's gone now. Right. So like, <laughs> right, right. So, so almost like to find out, and as you said, it's even was even tough to find the Matt Malley editorial or letter now. So, so I guess what I'm saying is that that's one nice thing, especially for newer fans. You're like, Oh, cause some of this stuff isn't even online, partly because it predated, you know, online documentation. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And, and it was very important to me that even hardcore fans find some new things in this book that they didn't know and, you know, hopefully like, oh, wow, I, I had no idea or didn't know that story. So I hope even the, the super fans will find some things that that are, are new to them. That was my hope. I certainly learned a lot of new things and I consider myself at least a reasonably big fan. Yeah, what, I, I'm, I'm curious, did, were you able to dig up much of the sort of message? Because I know Adam has been involved in different Counting Crows official message boards for a long, right. I mean, really going back even, I think, to AOL. And I remember that period in 2003, 2004, where he was posting a lot. But that all of that seems basically gone, unless I was, I, I assume there's ways to do deep dives on like maybe archive.org or something, but the Wayback Machine. But were you able to find much of that or just sort of bits and pieces? Or So it's hard to say how much of it I found because I don't know how much content there is. Exists, yeah. But I, I was able to try. Yeah, I mean, a lot of it is out there. You would be surprised. Uh, that that you can track down some of his old writings like that. Once you find one, you can start to Google those sentences and passages from those to find others. So I, I was able to track down some of that. Now, how much of it? I don't know. And also, one of the things I I would have loved to have uh, you know written more about in the book was how you know sort of innovative the band was around the internet, especially Adam getting on the internet so early, interacting with his fans. I wish that more of that had sort of been in the book or like sort of giving them credit for that because they were very early at sort of pioneering some of this stuff. I think some of the arguments they had with Geffen were around the band wanting to just give away their music for free and Geffen being like, uh, you know, <laughs> we, we this is the one thing that we sell. And so we're not so sure about that. But the arguments with the record companies, I think they were very pioneering in that sense. And I was one of those fans who was around during that time. I mean, I remember when Adam was 
um, calling uh, every us all unpleasant uh, people on the message boards back in the day. So I remember reading some of that too. And him, it was always very interesting to me as a fan that he would come on there and interact with us. I mean, it was kind of incredible that that this artist who was a huge rock star, but also that you were a fan of, would actually come on there. And it wasn't like he answered questions, but he would. He was certainly clearly a reader of it and uh, weighed in from time to time. But you're right. It's kind of was a sign of things to come, right? Look what happened to the internet. You know what happened to the internet since then. Right. And you could go on any celebrity Instagram <laughs> or whatever, and every celebrity could say, "You are all miserable, snarky, evil people." Because sixty percent of the comments right. are usually, "Yeah, he was right about that." Adam and, was um, right. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want to talk about it too much, but what I laugh yeah. now is I, I go back and look to that Coke commercial, and and I say, "How cool was it that?" they were so in the mainstream yeah. that Coke said, we want to have you. And I was like, look, and it's not just Adam, it's the whole band. There's Charlie and there's Dave and Matt, and they're all on national TV. I don't know. I thought looking back to me, it's kind of cool actually, but. Well, it's um, also Chris, that, that time, pe people kind of forget the context of that time period, which is like Willie Nelson's doing a gap ad, like almost that exact same time with yeah. interestingly, Ryan uh, Adams, friend, Ryan Adams, um, you know, there's all sorts of that, that. I don't know. There's just some things that are of the time where you feel like, well, lit again, if literally if Willie Nelson and freaking Bob Dylan are doing gap ads. Like, who am I to sit? Like, I have to be I have to be a real miserable person to be like no to, you know, Coke. Yeah. <laughs> right. I mean, is that is it really the worst? You know. <laughs> so what one thing I do want to also um, compliment you on that's more general, uh, such as the organization of the book. I did want to say um, now I actually. I don't want to say could uh, criticize, but um, it wasn't comprehensive, which uh, which actually is good because you could write about in future books or maybe some you couldn't find information. But one thing I did really like is that when you talked about the albums, um, maybe where possible, you would put a sentence or two about particular songs, it, particularly if you found like a fun fact about that song or maybe if a yeah. fan didn't know what that song was about. Um, as I said, the only thing bad is when you started doing it. And then I was like, well, you didn't talk about this particular song. Uh, why didn't you do that? <laughs> Where's the info inside info on carriage or something? But but like for just a random no. example and not something I even knew or even care about but i just took this right now that like i wish i was a girl was either some sort of tribute or inspired by a song i wish i was your mother by what, what was it matt the hoople or something which i didn't even know yes. but you had that yeah, they, but, well, but, yeah, yeah. but I'm, I'm just saying so, i did but... like that and because there were certain songs that i actually didn't know maybe either the inspiration or the origins or with the main so, so that those little nuggets even though they were brief i really appreciated that any anything you want to share about a particular song that maybe i guess is a hard question that maybe people don't realize what the actual inspiration was or something interesting you found when researching that well you know i mean you were just saying um you know you, i just literally in listening to these new orleans shows that that uh you sent me Adam talks about carriage in one of those shows and what yes. it means. And I had not heard that, you know, like maybe I obviously heard it when I was in New Orleans, but I certainly didn't remember it. And so I didn't realize it was a uh, song about a miscarriage. And that's what the title refers to. I absolutely would have included something like about that in the book. Uh, I just, you know, th this is the problem with a book like this. You can't listen to every single show and know right. every track down, every little fact. I wish I could. And, you know, I mean, 
uh, you know, fortunately with technology today, sometimes you can make some, uh, you know, adjustments and things like that. So, you know, maybe, maybe I'll, I'll sneak that in there. Uh, or for uh, the follow-up uh, book in, in, in 10 years, you'll, you'll have other things to talk <laughs> about. Uh, uh, Chris, do you have well, uh, part uh, of it, what's interesting is that like, cause I've listened to, I'm, again, I've always loved the tapes and I've, and surprised sometimes when you go back and listen to something you haven't listened to in a while and you're like, I definitely listened to the show. I did not remember that. You know what I mean? So yeah. that kind of stuff where you're right. like, how, I guess that left my brain at some point. I thought I was carrying all of this around with me, but apparently occasionally I do forget things. So Absolutely. I don't know, yeah. Chris, I, I don't know if you have any particular, I, I'm guess I'm going to mention either some things I want his thoughts on or just certain um, observations that I don't think are major revelations, but just things that for me as a hardcore fan are things that I didn't really know for sure for whatever reason um so one of it was okay i'll just pick this one how saturday night sunday and i don't know why i didn't know this maybe because i was overseas doing things and just busy how saturday night sunday mornings how almost half the songs were kind of older songs that they i mean i knew that 1492 was an older song that but you let me know that like come around was written before and there's a couple songs uh i, I mean about a handful right from saturday night sunday mornings and you also yes sundays. Yeah, sundays and yeah. you also los angeles it, is old yep yeah exactly los angeles. I, yeah. I i've thought for sure that they were all new and you also explained one thing i didn't really know and was always wondering why didn't they rent a house on the hill for that one, because that's a major change, right? Because Adam basically said yeah. when he recorded Recovering the Satellites, we're never not going to record a studio LP unless we rent a house. And they did that for right. four of their six major releases, but the last two they did not. And um, I guess you didn't get into why he why they didn't do it for the most recent, except for maybe hinting about family. You know, a lot of them are older, maybe family. But um, but anyway, any thoughts on that? And I guess you were just saying that mentally he wouldn't be able to maybe <clears throat> handle. But anyway, just your thoughts on and on that. So Saturday Night, Sunday Mornings was an album, <clears throat> excuse me, that I kind of rediscovered in some ways or, or listened to anew when I was writing this book and enjoyed it a lot. One of the reasons I think I enjoyed it more was discovering that songs like Sundays in Los Angeles in 1492 had been recorded during the sessions for prior albums. So like, you know, do you like this desert life? Well, then you should go listen to Sundays because you might hear it a little bit differently. If you realize it was recorded with that band by those producers in the, you know, during that time, you, it'll cause me to hear the songs differently and appreciate them in different ways. And that was true for Los Angeles and even 1492 as well. So I think that, just knowing that about the albums made me understand it differently, hear it differently and, and come to appreciate those, some of those tracks a little bit more, or at least hear them differently. So um, that was part of it. And then um, what was the second part? part well, I don't remember, but doesn't that even put more emphasis on then possible, whatever they call either lack of either, you know, either writing block or maybe doesn't want to do albums. Right. So if, if that was the largest gap, right, that was, was it six years oh, yeah. since hard candy and then, right. They haven't been releasing a lot of albums, but then you say, wow, half of that album was actually formally written. Right. Um, and even recovering the satellites, we were saying recently when we um, reviewed uh, one of the 1994 shows that a lot of recovering the satellites was written before, they got in the studio so it's it's i don't know well, it's interesting. interesting i was listening to one again one of the shows this week when they played recovering the satellites he talked about 
how he found that the the song recovering the satellites is from a, the cassette uh, some cassette demo that was the back half of someone that he asked for someone to send him a cassette of August and everything after the song and the the, the back he's like ah that that song still sucks um <laughs> and but the back half the, the second side was recovering the satellites and he was like oh shoot this is a perfect song to sum up the feelings that I'm having he wrote it several years before satellites oh i had no idea yeah no i don't think i'd ever heard that story before and he was just casually telling this on a wednesday night in providence or something um and it was Mm. really interesting that um but yeah that that a lot of times he's used some of that older stuff but saturday night's sunday mornings is the most because even if you look at the stuff that's new that hadn't been recorded before a lot of it by that point was older right that um washington square is 2003 on a Tuesday in Amsterdam is 2004. It's written like the same week as accidentally in love. Right. Um, so there's a lot of stuff that was kind of pulled together. Um, and even like something like Los Angeles, which is interesting because it's so, it, there's so much stuff that, 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 that's so much of that time. Right. Cause it's written with Ryan Adams and Dave Gibbs. And literally he's like, I think he pointed out, it's like, Oh, this is my verse. This is the, my Ryan's verse. This is Dave's verse. And you're like, Oh, if you weren't thinking right. about that contextually, you're like, what the hell is Boston have to do with this song? You know, Nashville. Yeah. Right. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And also I think uh, just going back, Eric, to your earlier uh, point or question about the house versus the studio. I, I, I agree with you that that was a significant change in, in terms of, you know, just for the whole band. And also part of this, it kind of, in some ways it goes back to the same thing with the Coke commercial, which was they were so staunch early on in certain positions, you know, and one of, one of which was we will never record in a studio because they're too sterile. I don't want to spend the whole session sitting by the Coke machine in the lobby. You know, there are all these, I mean, so and about many this quotes. group group collaboration that everyone's yeah. there when they're finally yeah. putting it together. And that's yeah. not exactly the case anymore. Right. It seems to be a right. couple of state, like for somewhere in their wonderland, I guess you kind of hinted, or if you look in the liner notes, I might be wrong here, but Adam did a lot by himself and then later brought in Emmy, Dan and Millard. And then that was the next stage. And then the third stage was bringing in, you know, whatever, maybe Dave and, and Jim and stuff. So, yeah. Yeah. So I, I think that just just that um, their their change in position is something that it gets captured in in the book because you see their sort of earlier stance. And as we go chronologically, you see how that changes and how that adjusts. And um, I, I think in the, in the same way that they were sort of taken to task for the Coke commercial in light of their earlier anti-commercial stance, you know, the, the people talk, you know, the same thing, like, well, you, you sort of say that you're going to, you know, record only in houses and this is how it's done and this is how it's organic and this is how we capture the vibe. And it's so important to us. And then you sort of dis- discard that and go in a different direction. So I think, I think in some ways it, it hits at that same thing, you know, where they, they kind of get knocked for those, those choices based upon taking such a, a harsh stance on it earlier on, you know? And I do somewhat understand, not somewhat, but I do understand the mental health struggles. And I like that you really sure. emphasize um, some of the, the, the prescription medicine issues that, 
he was fighting with in addition to depression and, and all sorts of, and it, understandable maybe why uh, Saturday night, Sunday mornings. Anyway, I guess he, he never commented on why they haven't returned to houses, right? Like, I guess the only other studio album would be um, somewhere on the Wonderland, but I guess there was never any comment about why that wasn't recording in a, yeah. in a Does house. Does he need to though? Because it's like, they all <laughs> no, have kids, a bunch of them have kids, do it they all live on different coasts. Like, yeah, I, you know, yeah, right. I guess. Although, although I, I was thinking about that. And then my, then my other response was, well, they do tour for months. Sure. Yeah. Do tour for okay. once. So, so why couldn't they rent a house for six weeks instead of touring for one? I don't know. That was just yeah. uh, that, that, that was just a, a thought. Just one thing I, I want to point yeah, out please. in the context of the sort of early that the, their anti-commercial positions, I do think Jeff, you kind of bring out some details about the development of the band and in particular the marketing of the band that mm-hmm. I think do mm-hmm. kind of get lost to time. Right. I think we all sometimes forget a little bit, like. They were on a major level label with a heavy hitter manager and they were doing, and again, I don't think this cheapens anything, but they were doing a lot of work to get noticed. Like, I feel like in the story, it kind of always goes, you know, we did round here on SNL. We were never supposed to be anything. And that sort of shoots us into the moon. And it's like, well, they were supposed to get somewhere. They were on a major that was pushing them with somewhat hard. Maybe they weren't meant to sell <laughs> 10 million records, right? right. They, they certainly overshot the moon there, even for the standards of the time. But right. they but- were not – it's an underdog story, but maybe not as much of an underdog as one as one sort of looks back on and thinks of them at the time you know you're you're exactly right because just the fact that all these record labels were bidding for them shows you that they weren't and and all of them were going to promote cannon crows very heavily so yeah i I did Mm -hmm. get that too that 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 there was more of a corporate influence that it doesn't mean it was a you know an artificial band but 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 there's more of a corporate influence to help their success in the beginning than maybe crows fans uh, realize yeah but all i think partially when when we're fans of you know any band you know out there we don't often see what goes on behind the scenes we don't see sort of how the sausage is made to me it was very important to show that in this book not because i think counting crows is unusual in this regard i think this is how it works i don't care if you're rem or stone temple pilots or u2 or uh, counting crows when you're on a major label this is how it works you know there's everything from stylists to photographers to producers to you know executives like Gary Gersh and you know Counting Crows were very lucky to have somebody like Gary Gersh who loved their music who understood the band and who wanted to see them do well so he was a powerful person who took personal interest in them this is often how it works this is how somebody gets to be you know Taylor Swift or Counting Crows or one of those groups it's not i mean yes they're incredibly talented but also they have somebody in the industry, and in this case, there were several people who just went, you know, we are such fans of what you're doing here, and we can see it that we're going to put you, you know, into the sort of star-making machine. But again, I don't think that that means that, you know, Counting Crows is some corporate band or was put together. I think this is how it works, you know? Well, it's part of, I think, they part of it's not just how you get there, but what you do once you get there, right? I think one of the reasons why this band has endured so long is that they got really popular and then took those chips and said, no, no, we want to keep, we don't want to get more popular. We want to get more freedom, right? Even if we're going to piss off, part of the beauty of what they've been able to do comes in part from the idea that, you know, they sold 10 million copies of that first record. So if you piss off half the people, there's still 5 million people. And if you piss off half the people the next time, there's still 2 million in a certain level where you can kind of keep going. And that's part of the attitude I think they've had, you know, for 30 years. I mean, a band 
not playing Mr. Jones in concert as frequently as they did over the years, that's ballsy, right? That's a pretty big thing to take one of your biggest hits and say, I'm going to, I'm willingly going to piss people off because I believe that I'm going to make a bunch of other people happy and they'll keep coming to see me. The person that was going to come see Mr. Jones once, screw them. Don't worry. They weren't going to come back anyway, kind of thing. That's kind of where I think they've kind of made that interesting <laughs> distinction. And I think that is the one decision I give the most credit to, like to Adam outside yeah. of a market, right? Is the idea to be different as a live band every night. That to yeah. me is always kind of like, that's part of what sustained them. And that's him, right? No record executive told them you should start changing up the songs every night. Yeah, no, that's, that's really well, well stated, Chris. And I think those artistic choices that, you know, Adam made and the Counting Crows made are why we love them so much. And, and because they did continually, I think, you know, change their sound. They never retreated back to August and everything after. They never went and rehired T-Bone Burnett to try to, re, you know, recreate the magic. And they easily could have done that. Every every single person on Geffen wanted them to do that. And they said no. And they said, we're, you know, we're here to create art, not commercial hits. And I, res you know, respect was one of the reasons I'm a fan of the band. I'm, I respect those decisions a lot, you know. You know what's so funny, though? I was thinking about this recently when watching some of the live um um, uh, the, the, the Banshee uh, tour on YouTube, which is that, of course, the hardcore fans are there. Like the three of us will probably go every tour, at least one show. But ironically, despite even some people saying that, oh, they didn't play Mr. Jones when I went in 2001, I'll never see them again. What's so interesting is because they were such an iconic 90s band is that they do still have a lot of probably more casual fans are going now. Yeah. Then I don't want to say in the beginning, but then like 15 years ago, right now, there's all of these fans that maybe do only know the hits and maybe they did see them once 20 years ago, but they're like, oh, Counting Crows, they had a bunch of songs. That'll be a good concert. Right. So that's kind of interesting that they came back anyway, even though uh, maybe they didn't play Mr. And of course, now they are playing Mr. Jones mostly every night. So, <laughs> much. yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> You yeah, know, so, right. well, they have, they have, I'm sorry, I was just going to say they have hits, you know, like this is a band with a deep catalog of great songs that people know, you know, even people who aren't fans of them know their songs and not just the ones from the first album. You know, my eight year old daughter loves Accidentally in Love, you know, loves that song. She doesn't know what kind of crows are, <laughs> you know, so they have lots of fans out there who, you know, who don't care, you know, if they play, uh, you know, Rain King or not in the in the set list tonight, you know. Well, you know, this is funny. I guess I was trying I have different points I want to make, but I guess this will transition to one that, as you hinted to in the book, and I kind of knew this, but, and I'm so happy that they are still playing, right? I, I was thinking about this when I saw them at the Troubadour or last year, you know, hey, we're all, they're not going to live forever. The band's not going to be around forever. And it's still nice that my favorite band is still playing. And even though they're playing, some people would say more hit or more predictable set list, they still do play deep cuts. They We'll play the suite now. Are some fans sick of the suite? Maybe, but other not all the but, time, right? Not That's all the time. We've seen recently over the last couple of weeks, they've they've written set list without the suite in it, which is interesting. And the first time they've done that since they came back, but that they're trading out, saying, "Oh, we'll do," you know, if we're doing Potters and Elizabeth and Round Here, we're going to leave out the suite to leave room for other songs, which is cool. That again, I'm not as we've talked about at great length, Eric. Right? Not against the suite, just maybe the problem is the suite in the same place every night all stayed together it kind of that kind of hurts the the flow of the shows but 
you know, if they're not going to put it there every night, that kind of changes the, the game a little bit. Yep. And when it was released, I do appreciate that they did play the entire thing because, I mean, there's nothing worse, I think, than being a hardcore fan of a band and they release something new and then you see them in concert and they maybe play one song off the new album, right? Because they only play the greatest hits. So I, I actually love that they do that. But but um, what I was kind of hinting at was, you know, I, I guess, and you really get to this, if you look at their career, and Chris, I think you even said this in one of the earlier shows, they're primarily a touring band, right? That's if you look at their career, and, and and it's hard for me to admit that sometimes because I'm more of a of, of a diehard obsessed with their studio albums, I guess. Right. Then even though I've I finally did the calculation, I've seen them 19 times. Because I think Chris, you said you were like 50, <laughs> 50 or something. something. And then, and then Jeff, what about you? Do you know? I finally calculated. It's not that many. I've seen them uh, 10 times. Okay, Ted, right. So, I, yeah. and, and mine, it was a couple short bursts. I had, you know, five one year, three another. Yeah. Because I yeah. was such a, because I, living in New York, there were some stretches where I did not have to go very far to see right. the band a lot. And they were playing very well, such that it was like, well, if they're playing again, I'm going to go see them. But, yeah. you know, when they're playing three nights in a row in a place that's like just over the river, it's not, it's not a heroic act on my part. <laughs> I've seen them so many times in certain ways. Yeah. So it, uh, anyway, so I, I got, and you kind of, I think hinted this and then, and I'll go to you, but it, it, you can talk about again, them versus out because what I did the math because I, you know, my math background is that they, they're what they have six, I guess, studio albums. If you don't count underwater sunshine and you don't count the EP, four of them were released in a span of 10 years, the first four, uh, nine years right. really. Um, and then since then, they've had three albums, one of those being a cover albums in 20 years, right? So now instead of every three years, they're released every seven years. So um, yeah, anyway, it, it's interesting. And I, and I know that I guess a lot of bands, this happens, right? The production, uh, the output goes a little low, but. Yeah, right, right. Well, um, I, I was going to just say, Chris, that I thought uh, they're playing the, um, the EP every night was another example of one of those artistic decisions where they say, we have a new piece. We know you'd rather hear the hits, but we're going to come out and play our new thing that you're unfamiliar with. And it's 20 minutes of the show. And that's because it's an artistic decision. We're not doing it to please you. We're doing it to please ourselves as artists. And I absolutely respect them for doing that. And I would rather mm -hmm. see them play that than see them play around here one more time. You know, for sure, just because I know, you know, that they're absolutely committed to it. I was just going to ask the two of you, though, having seen all these shows, what was your favorite show? Uh, the two that spring to mind, uh, one is the, the August and everything after show at town hall that the one that ended up being the DVD, um, is a spectacular. And that's actually, it's interesting because that DVD is essentially the first half of the show. They played all of August and everything that. after then a bunch of, uh, a bunch of new songs, which would be, be on Saturday nights and Sunday mornings, and then a bunch of covers and stuff, including one with Chris Caraba, who of course they're touring with, uh, this summer. Um, and then also the one that I always go to that is, it's not one show, but th they did three nights at the Wellmont theater in 2008. And with the exception of long December and two different versions of rain King didn't repeat a song. And so those three nights in a row are sort of burned in my mind of like the peak of like, this is, this band is just giving me everything and all sorts of wild surprises and different things where it was like, Oh yeah, I'll follow this band. You tell me where they're playing, I'm going, um, if it's anywhere near me, because who knows what might happen next, 
right? It's kind of the thing, again, I think that's they've lost a little bit over the last decade is that sense of what might happen next. And good, things are dropping out of the sky recently. Like they played Accidentally in Love and uh, Angels of the Silences. They started playing again. But in the overall scheme of things, they're a little bit more of a predictable band than they were 10 years ago. But that's, And that's okay. But that's part of what I think sometimes these things that keep you going is like, this band really was. And then again, you look at those shows, um, those New Orleans shows in 2001, they're playing, interestingly, they're playing two nights in a row. A lot of the songs are repeats, but the repeats are not the popular songs. They're brand new songs at the time. So, and I should mention, I mentioned, but um, we were talking about shows we went to uh, as we were preparing to record this. And Jeff said, you said you drove how long to see them in New Orleans in 2001? It's like a thousand miles, basically. <laughs> <laughs> what what got you to do that? Because that's a pretty amazing dedication. Well, that they were playing new songs. You know, it was like the Counting Crows are on the road and they're playing new songs from their unreleased album. You know, and they're going to be playing at a small club two nights in a row in New Orleans. You know, um, you know, I I I was somebody who spent a considerable amount of time in my twenties shutting it down in New Orleans myself. Uh, a good friend of mine was a, a bartender at the French Quarter there, which was a good person to know, who also happened to have a like a kind of weird long story, but a, a spare apartment that uh, friends could use. So anytime I wanted, I could drive down to New Orleans with friends of mine. I had a free apartment to stay and, uh, and a friend who was a bartender in the French Quarter. So I, needless to say, made that trip a number of times. And when Counting Crows announced those shows, you know, the, the tickets were like $25, $30 back then. Uh, I called one of my oldest friends and said, you want to drive to New Orleans and see Counting Crows two nights in a row? He said, absolutely. So off we went. <laughs> but that's awesome. And then that's that's the beauty of and that's beauty of them doing two nights is you're not like, well, there's going to be two different evenings. So now I guess I've got to go to both. Right. And that's a whole was it like a whole weekend in New Orleans, essentially, like a Friday yeah, and a Saturday I, or something. I don't think it was. I mean, I could I, you know, I have the uh, tickets here. Let me see if it tells. Uh I've actually found the old ticket stubs. Here we go. Yeah, this was on a Monday and Tuesday uh, in, in August. You know, I remember. Yeah, there you go. Something I, I always remember about it looking back was this was August you know 27th and 28th, 2001. So this is just before 9-11. It's like, you know, I'm, I'm driving off to New Orleans to see Counting Crows. It's like, man, remember, remember life before 9-11, you know, back when world was totally different you know <laughs> well it's so funny of course when he tells when he talks and it's a year before right but that when he's when he sings miami and tells the story it's always about i could go up to the gate and greet my girlfriend right because it was before right. 9 11 and so that's yeah yeah does that does is i will say does does miami is miami kind of one of your favorites because of that evoking that sort of feeling of of that time in your life let's go shut well, it down in new Orleans. Uh, yeah, I mean, I remember, I remember because they opened both of those shows with Miami. And um, I remember hearing those, you know, hearing Miami for the first time ever, which was at those shows. And it's still one of my favorite songs. But you know how it is with a song. Sometimes you go to see a band in San Diego and they start singing and then the song becomes about San Diego. They just put it into the lyrics. So at the time, you didn't know that like, okay, this is an actual lyric from this song. Maybe it's just, maybe he's going to shut it down in Boulder when he's playing in Boulder. You know, I don't know. Um, so it was very, you know, when, when I finally heard that um, album come out, you know, a, a year later, it was, 
I, I just, I still, I just love Hard Candy, that album. And I think part of it was from seeing those shows and just, you know, such a great experience. That was the same thing, Chris, back when you're talking about, there was a sense of, you know, the unknown with those shows. So you would go two nights because you didn't know what you were going to get on that second night. The shows would be very different. The set list would be very different. Adam's mood would be different. It would all be different. And it was, it was very much worth going because you weren't sort of seeing the, the movie a second time. Chris, you, uh, I'm sorry, Eric, you still got to tell us your, your favorite show. Too. Oh, yeah. And, I've <laughs> yeah. and I've talked about this a little bit. And by the way, it's funny because when Chris uh, mentions those shows uh, in the and he did it on, on a prior podcast, I said, I knew those shows because I remember looking at the set lists. Uh, I think I was overseas and, the, and I said, wow, they're playing some incredible deep cuts. I said, and I was thinking in my mind, like, how great would it be to go to multiple, like all three of those shows or whatever? And you said you went to all three, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 So that, that's amazing. Um yeah, just to, just to say, and and I think again, this might have been something we mentioned before. Um, I I think I did, but when you said about Miami, that um, and I appreciate you, and I'll plug your book again. You actually, what well, I said, I saw them nineteen times. A lot of them were for the Hard Candy College Tour that mm -hmm. you reference, and mm -hmm. I haven't heard mm -hmm. anybody else mention this because people almost forget about that tour because literally right. it was like I think uh, let's see, was that two thousand two? I mean, I was in my late twenties, I guess, but I felt like an uncle at those shows because um, <laughs> right, right. some some of them were at like one was at Messiah College in Pennsylvania. I mean, there's not yeah. a lot of locals there. Now I went to the one in Morgantown, West Virginia, that had a lot of locals. That's that's a pretty big town, um, yeah. for, especially for West Virginia. But Messiah College, it was a lot of undergraduates and me who they're like, oh, who's the professor or the graduate <laughs> student? Um, but I couldn't believe that Counting Crows was playing there. Now it's funny you even kind of hint at it the book and there might have been some reasons to kind of capture maybe that's just where they thought they could get booked i think it was also to kind of capture younger fans i think that was part of it too with these with hard candy which is a little poppy compared to some of the other albums I, i'm not sure and what was the reason you said in the book that they played a lot of those college shows if you remember well i think part of it was that because they tour so much and they would play New York, you know, three times in a, in a year that they were trying to look for ways to, you know, to keep playing a lot, but not just, you know, do the same thing oh, over right, and over. Right. So they did the college tour. They did the wine, started having wineries and, and sort of alternative venues. Yep. And I think also pairing, you know, doing these sort of co-headlining tours as they did so many times and have done so many times was another strategy to sort of, you know, not just do the same thing, you know, not just be the headliner, playing the show again. And, and so I, I, I just, uh, the reason I say that too, is that on one of the first colleges I went to is they played Miami. They were testing or either testing it out or about to release. I guess that was an one. Yeah. I was just making a list. And I also, like you, I said to Chris last time, like I went to, me and my friend looked at each other and we're like, that's going to be an amazing song on the album. Cause that's the first time we heard it. It was just a right. great uh, live song. Um, the, the best show I went to was actually just last year, uh, Jeff. Um, wow. I think I mentioned it before the man Manchester United Kingdom. I just thought the the band was playing as a whole the best I've ever seen them. I was also second row in the middle, so that obviously has something to do that with helps. it. I snuck up. But the and then and then the set list was really good. Of course it was mostly set. The set list was set, but the kind of rotating songs that they put in were some of my favorites, which were I Wish I Was a Girl, 1492, um, Recovering the Satellites, and there was um there oh and come around. Mm -hmm. playing those four songs was big to me and guess what you know what also made it great 
the fans, I hate to say it, are so much better than the American fans. And then <laughs> that got Adam to play even better. I swear mm-hmm. when he was doing mm-hmm. Bobby and the Rat Kings and the crowd was into it, near the end, I thought he was going to cry. Because he was mm-hmm. just having, and even Jim, um, you know, drummer Jim Bojo, he, he even mentioned something about that show on his Facebook. And I think he right. even showed, uh, showed the, uh, the crowd at a certain part of one of the songs because they feed off that. They know if everybody's right. just drunk and talking to their neighbors and not paying attention to the show and only being respectful during the big hits. So, um, so anyway, that, and it's a shame, though, we talked about that. Actually, that show is not available on on nugs because it's overseas i don't know if there's a Uh, you know a bootleg but there are some a few youtube videos about it um nice yeah well one thing i want to say and i did meet them in one uh one of the songs uh somewhere under wonderland that's the only time i did the meet and greet um and one thing that you said in the book which actually hit home to me is is i've known from adam's interviews that and clearly, even if you didn't listen to the interviews, if you listen to Somewhere Under Wonderland, of course, musically, it had a certain sound. But clearly, it was one of the first times that, as you say in the book, he does talk about personal things. I mean, some of the things in Somewhere Under Wonderland are clearly based upon personal experiences. Yet, right. he tries to write more from a third person. Okay. So mm-hmm. a little bit of me was a little bit critical of that because... I guess at the time I thought, well, he's almost just trying to challenge himself a little bit and that's good. And I'm sure he's excited about that. But then is he doing it just for the sake of challenging themselves and taking away a little bit what we love? And I also want to hear his insights at age, maybe at the time he was in his fifties, I guess. Like I want to kind of hear his Mm -hmm. reflections on life and he does this in possibility days and some other ones, but I was like, Mm -hmm. Jesus, he doing that. But one thing that you mentioned in the book, which I did not know is even though it was clearly deliberate, part of it is that he's like, I don't, I'm kind of sick of sharing some of my personal stories. So that, and I understood Mm -hmm. that. So that kind of hit home and I appreciated that. Um, Yeah. Oversharing. And, you know, I mean, I think in some ways it's interesting how this band's entire career has been a reaction to their first album, you know, in some ways it's like, it really has. And I think that's true somewhere under Wonderland too. It's always like, you know, we know we have to respond to this. We know what you want or the fans or whatever. We know what we're willing to do and um, we know what we're not willing to do. And so each album for them has created a challenge. And I do think Adam challenged himself to, you know, after uh, Saturday nights and Sunday mornings, he said, I'm, I'm, I'm overshared. I'm done. I've shared everything that I feel like sharing. And I want to write about other people now and, and you know, try yep. a different strategy and as puts, a writer. That's yep. cool. You know, and it puts things in perspective. I mean, clearly, because I mean, you, I, I'm guessing both of you know this, but for years, if people asked him his favorite, uh, sorry, not his favorite song, who, what he thought his best song was, which I always disagreed, is he said Long December, clearly. And he said that for decades. And then and then he replaced that with Palisades Park because that he had a challenge that he wanted these different shifts in music right. throughout the course right. of the because probably it is the most up until sweet most sophisticated, I guess, song or probably one of the most difficult to write and still be a great song. So I get that. Um, but then he said he kind of wanted to do the same thing in the suite. Right. He wanted to take that idea of shifting the different parts of, you know, putting it together in one song for Palisades Park and then doing it with the suite. So, um, yeah, anyway, mm-hmm. it, it's good. I, it, But it is interesting that um, maybe this is one of not one of the last things, but one thing I did want to touch upon 
that I, I don't want it to be, I guess, negative because we all know I somewhat worship Adam and the rest of the band. Uh, <laughs> that um, and he would hate to hear that, but 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 when we talk about touring versus um, studio albums, and again, he uh, mental um, you know uh, issues and 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 different setbacks, and of course dealing with fame. But you know, could he have? written more right we even said a lot of his and you even mentioned it's in the book you have a line that like oh adam doesn't like writing on the road which by the way i totally get that that part i 100 percent get and i also appreciate that he likes the structure of being on the road and that forces him right to do something um but but how, how do i phrase this um but 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 could yeah could he have written more and i guess there's part of me that thinks like when he uh when he is under the gun and when he has to and I, and I think of course people are different in their 20s and 30s and there's even some academic research that says creative output peaks at 35 or something like that I've read that <laughs> somewhere um but like when he got pressure to write accidentally accidentally in love he he suddenly could do it and yeah. like you know when he decided to write the suite so this part of me I you know I I, I don't want to say I, I just think it's it's more I think it's just mentally difficult for him right it takes so much work that he has to get the internal energy to do it but when he actually forces himself to do it he probably could have been more productive you know but it makes me think about philosophic issues like do you just want to have as much output as possible or if you get rich off a couple albums should you just enjoy the rest of your life right what what you know because i get that too right and sometimes he did talk about that right that he just wants to relax and enjoy his life a a little more and i remember him Mm -hmm. writing about going to broadway more and he's like i just want to enjoy new york i live in new york i have funds i don't have kids I, I don't know it just gets me thinking about these these issues what what do you both of you think about that i'm i'm go ahead yeah chris go ahead no i mean i i think it is part of i think the story that there's he's someone who forced himself i think at times to be creative you t- even i think you had uh Jeff, you did a good job of describing the process of writing, even like recovering the satellites and how sort of arduous that was for him. That even that, even at that early stage, he's really fighting and trying to get stuff out and like throwing stuff away that a lot of other people would say were good songs. Um, you know, and and so there's that that thing where he's, it's always kind of been a struggle. And then you do get to that certain point where, yeah, as things start to decline, and if again, if they're if thirty five, right, he would have hit that somewhere in the late nineties, um, and maybe yeah, that that we he's kind of been up against that, going back a ways, and we've seen that over the last twenty years, and what we've actually gotten in terms of recorded output, um, doesn't make the, what's good less good, but that that there's just right. less new stuff coming out of him over the over that time period. Mm-hmm. I, I find that Adam is someone that generally, I mean, everybody contradicts themselves a little bit. And I think creative people tend to write because they're thinking different things. And generally, I find that Adam is someone that does not contradict himself, uh, which which I appreciate. But maybe one exception to that, which I got from the book, is whether, maybe this comes back to, do I want to be a rock and roll star? But but part of it is like what you said, hey, I'm just going to create a suite if people like it. They like it. It's I just want to do what I want to do. And then there are times that he referenced maybe, well, we're not in the zeitgeist anymore. We're not. But there's part of that a little bit he kind of still wanted to be because he also said about somewhere in the Wonderland that he was actually 
like it kind of turned him off from writing albums because it didn't sell. Like he's like, this is some of my best stuff. And people, not enough people appreciated that. Well, that kind of contradicts, you know, the mm-hmm. fact of just doing it for doing it. So, um, mm-hmm. but I get both sides and probably he has both opinions. So I understand that. Uh, yeah. But anyway, I just found it to be interesting. There's also like, you know, he doesn't have a, he's a McCartney without a Lennon, you know, he's a Mick Jagger without a Keith Richards. There is no counterpart to him in the band as there are in some of the great bands, not all of them. You know, he's much more of like a Tom Petty or a Bruce Springsteen where he's kind of at the center of things and everyone's there to support his artistic vision. But I think as a writer that creates a new you know set of challenges because you don't have that counterpart, you know, who's maybe not, you know, they're, they're having a hot moment with their writing. They bring you in, you know, I think those collaborations are always interesting. And, you know, he's, he's, I mean, I, I, he is the real center of musical gravity in that group. He writes all the lyrics and most of the music. And so um, there, there's a unique pressure on, on him, I think. Uh, I will say that that study found that writers peak much later. So as a writer, he he should, he should be able to go, I think it's into his eighties or nineties and continue to improve. Um, but also I was very impressed in writing the book, how he was able to, at various junctures, sort of write to, you know, spec or, you know, when they said, okay, you're going to do accidentally in love, you know, he nailed it. I mean, he wrote a, like he nailed that song. Um, I think, I think he was kind of deliberate about writing, hanging around, which is maybe not one of my favorite songs, but I think he, he had a goal with that song that he accomplished. He had a home run in terms of what he wanted to do strategically mm. as a writer, he accomplished. And I really respect that about him too. Cause I think you see, exa- I saw that as a continual thread that I didn't pick up on until I wrote the book, but I, it impressed me his ability to do that. Yeah. And he did set goals, right? I mean, that's for each record right. you hear, you can find the quotes where he's like, Hard Candy is going to be a pop record. I'm going to write it like this. These songs are going to sound like this. And there's a lot of wonderful songs in that record um, that are that do fit that theme. You know, I mean, there is a real theme to that record and to a lot of the records. If you kind of look back and go, oh, yeah, that's why they sound different. It's in part because he was trying to write a different kind of record and succeeded in large part. Yeah, yeah, Jeff, this rem- um, th- what I was talking about, it reminds me, for, for those listening to the podcast, I'll probably say it a lot. And it's, it's definitely a... A distant number two, but my number two band is, is the Smashing Pumpkins, and I, I see a lot of similarities, not in the music necessarily, although a little bit kind of that they want to mix the guitar rock with some softer things and experimentation, but more about their personalities. I think they're kind of different sides of the same coin, um, and I don't <laughs> yeah. know if either of them would appreciate that, and I always wanted to know what they thought of each other's music, um, yeah. but, it, but Adam what loves Broadway, uh, Billy Corgan loves professional wrestling, it's professional two sides wrestling. of the same, it's two sides <laughs> exactly. of the same coin. That's right. And I really mean that, but that's, yeah, no, you're right. Um, somebody who's just willing to go to the ends of the earth, you know, to, to adhere to his artistic vision in a way. Exactly. I mean, it's insane. Like he doesn't care if there's one person or nobody left of the audience that night (laughs) at the end of the show, he's still playing the songs he wanted to play. And, you know, recently, recently (laughs) in the last couple of years, same with Adam, a little more of their greatest hits that he has pivoted a little bit in the last like four years, which is interesting to me. Um, And maybe he thinks that's also a way to get people in the stands and then show it some music. But what got me thinking is he's the opposite in some ways, too, where he just produces he just he releases as much as possible. They have like 15. I forget the count now, but he just so Smashing Pumpkins just released a triple album. So he's released more 
in the last like five years, I want to say like if you count that as three, and then another one was like a double. He's released like more and less than Cat and Crows have forever. And he also has put a ton in the band. But you know what the line that gets me is when, which I understand, Adam, and it's kind of changed when he said about the no children, about why he doesn't have children. I know in the past he said he was kind of worried mm. about passing off his mental illness to children. Mm. Um, but he also said he put it all on the band. Now, Billy kind of did the same thing and just in the last couple of years had two children. Now he's still on tour all the time. Now he waited until he was close to 50 or whatever, mm-hmm. but he had to, but anyway, it just got me, th- I don't know. I, I just made, made the comparison. Um, it, what, just one last, totally not going to say last, but one random thing I wanted to ask. And cause I've, I've, I've taken this from your book and Adam's interviews where how, and it's such a, um, something that was very decade specific, or I guess it crosses on two decades, which is that this desert life and kid things, i uh, sorry. Uh, well, on this desert life, kid things on the desert life and big yellow taxi on hard candy were both hidden tracks. Yeah. And Adam talks about how those hidden and that was such a thing of that decade, right? To have a hidden track. I know Dave Matthew. I know a bunch of bands did it. it but it, but it got me thinking that I think Adam has also hinted that they were both like major decisions in a way like because. OK, so I kid things as a I think the thing with kid tra- and maybe you can correct me having kid things as a bonus track made it so I think it was Baby I'm a Big Star Now was then totally omitted because that also might have been a hidden track, but they already had one. And then Big Yellow Taxi, they threw on as a fun hidden track. But then in retrospect, Adam said, I would probably sold a million more albums if we had it as a regular track. So that and then later they issued it, reissued it with a regular track, but it kind of missed that opportunity. I don't any thoughts yeah. about hidden tracks, Jeff, with your research or <laughs> <laughs> and there was when they replaced it, you know, Big Yellow Taxi, it was with the Vanessa Carlton version. So, oh, right. right. The different you know, version. I mean, yes. literally, like they took their song, had somebody add her vocals to it, and then put it on their album. You had to wonder kind of what they thought about it. Yeah, very oh. much uh, uh, the of the era. Like the REM had hidden tracks. And sorry, Chris. Although I was saying that with the Vanessa Carlton thing, there's a famous, uh, they met at some point, like in New York, and were just like, they were just like, oh, we sing together. Right. <laughs> like yeah, they, had, exactly. they had just met each other. Never and then met. she showed yeah. up. She showed up to one of the, I think it's the, the San Francisco shows in 2003. And they did that song together. And I think did a thousand miles together as well with Adam singing backing vocals. And it's quite good. Um, but that, then that never happened again. But yeah, they, they literally <laughs> met and were like, hi, um, we're on a, we're on a, a very popular record together. <laughs> right. Nice to I, meet I, you. Yeah. Right. And, and uh, and the video, yeah, it is interesting how uh, how that, that happens. You're reminding me, Chris, right? The, on Hard Candy, actually, the hidden track version is not the Vanessa Carlton version, right? Or or right, it, exactly. The hidden, the hidden track right. version is without. It's sort of from the, when they were doing a bunch of covers, right? Right. See, um, I, yeah, because I hadn't listened to that. I've had listened to Hard Candy well, recently, but I actually haven't made it all the way to the hidden track recently. I forgot about that. Yeah. Yeah. So it, initially, when the album came out, it was the Counting Crows cover of that song. Later, the producer, uh, you know, Vanessa Carlton's producer had her add her vocals to it and they released it on a soundtrack and it became Counting Crows with Vanessa Carlton, which they hadn't really collaborated, but they put it out. Then Geffen, when it became a hit, reissued Hard Candy with the new version on Hard Candy. So they replaced the original version of uh, Counting Crows only with the new version of Vanessa Carlton. And I believe listed it on the album after that. So it became a no, no longer a hidden track. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, An I uncovered track. Yeah.
All right, so that wraps up the first hour of our conversation with Jeff Harkness. The second hour coming up in just a few short weeks on episode seven of Sullivan Street. See you down there. Oh, oh.